following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right. Jude, we're going to talk about Cora today. I, I know you've all been on the edge of your seat for a month about this. And since it's been a while since we have been in Jude, uh, I'm going to start back with verse 1, and we're going to read up through verse 11 just to get us back into the context and the flow of where Jude is going. So just remember, Jude is writing to a church where false teachers have infiltrated the church, and they're really doing damage to the spiritual life of people. And so Jude is just coming right out of the gates with, I got to let you know you need to take these false teachers seriously. So Jude chapter 1. It's the only chapter. We'll start with verse 1. Jude, a slave or a servant of Jesus the anointed and a brother of James to you, the ones who have been called, whom God the Father loves and whom Jesus the anointed one has kept. May kindness, peace, and love be yours in abundance. And I suspect what follows for a while here is Jude explaining what would be robbing them of kindness, peace, and love. Friends, I have been trying to write you about our common salvation, but these days my heart is troubled and I'm compelled to write to you and encourage you to continue struggling for the faith that was entrusted to the saints once and for all. Vile men have slithered in among us. Depraved souls who stand condemned have made a mockery of the grace given to us, using it as a pretext for a life of excess lived without any thought of God. These poor fools have denied Jesus the anointed, our one Lord and Master. You've heard the stories many times, and the Spirit has enlightened you about their meaning, but you still need to be reminded. Now, here's the stories. Remember when the Lord saved our ancestors from the land of Egypt. He breathed life into their earthen lungs, and then he took back the life from those who did not believe. And God has kept the rebellious heavenly messengers bound and chained in utter darkness, shadowy gloom, until the time when his judgment arrives, because they failed to keep their rightful positions and abandoned their appointed realms. Sodom and Gomorrah and all their neighbors were defeated by their own sexual perversions as they pursued the strange and unnatural impulses of the flesh. And we've covered those stories in different sermons. There's a lot to unpack in each of those. If Jude is new to you, uh, those stories might sound a little odd. I would just point you to uh, the notes we have posted from previous sermons. Let those who went their own way and are experiencing the eternal heat of God's vengeance, a punishment by fire, be a warning to you. These stories are examples to help you understand the folly of those dreamers who have slipped in and defiled your community, rejected those in charge, and insulted the glorious majesty of even the heavenly messengers. Even their chief, Michael, when disputing with the devil over Moses' body, did not offer his own taunting judgment against him. Michael simply said, may the Lord's rebuke fall on you. The deceivers among you despise what they do not understand. They live without reason, like animals, reacting only with primal instincts, and their ways are corrupting them. Woe to these deceivers. They're doomed. They have followed in the footsteps of their father Cain. They have sold their souls for profit into Balaam's deceit. And brings us to today's message, they have suffered the devastation of Korah's rebellion. All right, so the Korah story. The Korah story happens 
right at the point when Israel was turned back from the promised land and they were sent to wander for 40 years in the desert because of their unbelief and their disobedience. So they're facing 40 daunting years coming up. So if you go to Numbers chapter 16, it's going to open up with Korah, who, by the way, was a first cousin of Moses, leading a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, the two people that God had appointed as leaders amongst the children of Israel. So Korah was a Levite, and this matters because the Levites, they helped the priests. Uh, in fact, they, I believe, moved the temple furnishings and the Talmud, the writing of the Jewish people. They claimed that uh, Korah was actually one of those who would carry the Ark of the Covenant from place to place. It was, a, it was an honored responsibility to be able to do that kind of thing. But he wasn't a priest in the same way that Aaron was, so he wasn't allowed to do what the priests like Aaron did, and this made him jealous. You're going to see as the story unfolds that the Jewish people make a lot of connections between this story and the story of Cain and Abel. So you're going to see right off the bat, uh, Korah's jealous that uh, Aaron gets to make sacrifices that he does not, that somehow Aaron's sacrifices are acceptable, but Korah's wouldn't be. So we're going to be tracking this correlation between Cain and Korah as this story goes on. So Korah decides he'll appoint himself to a priestly role. The deal with Moses was that God had appointed him. Moses didn't ask it. In fact, Moses had tried to reject it. But Korah, that's not important to Korah. He wants to appoint himself. And here's what he says in Numbers chapter 16, beginning in verse 3. And they, that would be Korah and his followers, they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you've taken too much upon yourselves. Since the entire congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them, why then do you lift up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? In other words, he's making the argument, we are all God's chosen people. We're all holy and called out. So if we're all holy and called out, why do you get to do some things in a priestly role and we don't get to do those same things? You, you've exalted yourself too highly. The rest of us should be there with you. Perhaps you could say it this way. Because we're all holy, God wants us to do the same thing or have the same position. Now, I'm just going to note here that I don't think Korah is being honest because Korah is not asking for, say, the Benjamites to be able to do what Aaron does. He's not asking for any of the other people groups. He just goes, hey, since we're all equal, I should get to do this is really what he's trying to say. Well, the two guys who follow Korah, their names are Dathan and Abiram, uh, and if any of you are looking for baby names, those are two good ones, Dathan and Abiram. <laughs> they just make things worse. I mean, Moses says, because they're part of what Korah's doing, and Moses goes, hey, can you guys come meet with me? And they're like, nah, nah, we're not going to come meet with you. And then they go on to say, actually, we kind of miss Egypt. That was the land flowing with milk and honey. Recognize that phrase? They're claiming Egypt was actually the promised land. And they say to Moses, I think you brought us out of Egypt just to kill us. And, and in fact, they say, Moses, you treat us just like slaves, which makes me think they're maybe trying to make a connection to people's mind between Moses and Pharaoh, like we didn't leave into any better situation. Moses is enslaving us like Pharaoh, Egypt with the land flowing with milk and honey. Let's go back. Well, okay, now Moses is angry. I think this is understandable. And he says to God, listen, don't accept their offering. And then he says an interesting phrase. I haven't taken so much as a donkey from them. 
which is not a phrase you hear often. So according to the Jewish writings, uh, Korah was really wealthy. When they left Egypt, he, I don't know if he plundered a bunch of gold or they claim he found a treasure that Joseph hid. There's different stories. But apparently Korah comes out of Egypt with a lot of gold and the story is he had 300 donkeys that were laden with treasure. So when Moses says, I didn't take so much as a donkey, it's probably even more than a donkey. It's like, I haven't taken anything from you. Like if this is Moses' attempt to use the people who he's leading and profit from them, he's not doing a very good job of it. Like he didn't even get a donkey from it, and that seems like a minimal benefit. So yeah, if this was a power trip from Moses, it's a weird one. So Moses and Korah have what basically boils down to a worship contest. And this is number 16. You can read more detail about it. But they're going to see who's offering God. But except, once again, go back to the Cain and Abel story. This was going to be a dividing line. Will God accept the offering that they give? So what's going to happen is that Aaron and then Korah and his followers, they're all going to make a priestly sacrifice that only Aaron was allowed to do. And they'll see if they can do it. So basically they call Korah's bluff. They're like, all right, so let's offer a sacrifice. If this is true that the fact that we're all holy and called out and chosen suddenly means there is division of anything distinctive or we can ignore what God has said we ought to be doing within the congregation of the people. Well, let's, let's just do a sacrifice and see what happens. So Moses tells them you get the censer, the fire, the incense, all these types of things they use for sacrifice, and the Lord will make his choice known. Now, there's history here. Two of Aaron's sons had tried to offer sacrifice when they weren't supposed to, and the result of that was that they died. Everyone would have known this because this was during the same journey. So Korah and his followers, they had to know what was at stake. They'd seen it happen before, and, and they decided it was worth it. Um, Adam Clark, I've mentioned his name before. I really liked his commentary on this section. He said, they wished to set up a priesthood and a sacrificial system of their own. And God has never blessed and never can bless any scheme of salvation which is not of his own appointment. So once again, like Cain, Korah wants to worship and serve God on his own terms. Well, Moses warns everyone to separate themselves from these guys because he said God's going to do a new thing, which is an interesting phrase because usually when we use the phrase in church, God's going to do a new thing, it's something very exciting and positive. And here Moses goes, uh, actually, God's going to do a new thing. And then he gives what's going to happen. He says, listen, if when they make this offering, if the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go alive down into Sheol or the realm of the dead, which kind of in their worldview was they're just going to go down into the earth. Then Moses says, everyone would know that God was not happy with their sacrifice. So here's what's happening. Number 16, verse 32. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their houses and all the people belonging to Korah and all of their possessions. There's only one other time in the Old Testament that the Torah uses the phrase, opened its mouth to swallow something, and that was the blood of Abel. So this is once again where you see these correlations between the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, I suppose we could spend a sermon, a sermon unpacking the judgment of God and why that punishment, et cetera, but that's not the point of the sermon this morning. I, I just want to note something positive before we leave this story and make an application to ourselves. That there's hope in this story. I, I've mentioned with both 
Cain and with Balaam. There was hope in the story. There's hope in this story. And that is, the Bible records that the sons of Korah, at least some of them, refused to stand with their father, and they were spared. And in fact, if you read the Psalms, there's about 10 Psalms or so that are credited to the sons of Korah. They make it into the kind of compilation of songs that the Israelite people would sing. Second Chronicles says they went on to stand up to praise the Lord. They were in charge of the work of the service. Uh, they were the keepers of the thresholds of the tents, just as their father had been in charge of the camp of the Lord. And in fact, tradition has it the prophet Samuel is a descendant of Korah, which would have been a descendant from his sons. And it's just a reminder, history is a destiny, right? History is a destiny. And so even in the midst of that, uh, that punishment and that sobering episode in the history of God's people, you see that not all of the fruit had to be rotten. His sons went on to carry on the name of Yahweh and to serve in his temple and to serve his people. All right, so that's the story of Korah. So I want to go back and compare uh, Cain and Balaam and Korah for just a second. Now, this is just my list, all right? There could be different words that you would use for this. But I'm going to put this on the screen so you can kind of see a big picture of what Jude is warning the church about. He says, this is what these false teachers are like, and this is what's going to happen. So the motivation, Cain had a selfish heart. Balaam had a greedy heart. Korah has a rebellious heart. Their character, Cain was jealous, Balaam was mercenary, Korah was traitorous. Their goals, Cain wanted autonomy, he wanted to worship as he wanted. Balaam wanted money, Korah wanted power. The results, Cain kills his brother, Balaam corrupts God's people, and Korah leads his followers to destruction. And then the consequence, for Cain it was exile. For Balaam it was death in battle, he ended up fighting with those he sided with to betray Israel and was killed in battle. And Korah is the one of these three where you get a legitimate kind of smiting if we use that kind of language. So it seems to me that Jude is trying to paint a very clear picture. He says, listen, your false teachers are going to be characterized by these things. They're selfish. They're greedy. They're rebellious. Um, they're jealous of people. They want money. They're traitors to the kingdom. They desire autonomy and money and power. And here's what's going to happen. People around them will die. And it doesn't necessarily mean in the physical sense like you see in the Old Testament, but spiritually, the language in the New Testament often has to do with people whose faith is shipwrecked or there's something that happens to them, there's a spiritual destruction. And the consequence or the punishment for these people, whether it's in this life or the next, is going to be grim. All right, so Jude, Jude's not letting up at this point in the letter. Take false teachers seriously. See them for who they are and understand if you follow in their way, trouble follows. So I want to take this section this, or this verse with these three characters that is in many ways very unsettling and sobering. And I've mentioned in each of these three there's an element of hope. So I, I want to take what we've learned not to do and apply it to what we should do. So I want to talk about what a true heart of worship looks like or really what true worship looks like. So three things. There's a heart of worship, there's the acts of worship, and then the results of worship. So the heart of worship. And I'm, I'm trying to align my bullet points 
with the stories and, and give like the opposite of what they did. Like if you don't do that, you do this. So first of all, a true heart of worship is surrender to God's will. Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's just a reminder that when we follow Christ, we climb up onto the altar and we sacrifice our autonomy, our choices, our decision-making, our actions. We sacrifice them for the sake of Christ. We surrender ourselves. It's the heart, soul, mind, and strength that Jesus talks about. And the Bible talks about this path of life, this path of righteousness. The part of what we're surrendering as we surrender fully to God's will is to say, not my will, but yours be done. Not my path, but your path is the one that I will walk on. And it covers every aspect of life. The, the biblical vision of surrendering to Christ is not, I get to keep this part of my heart, or I get to keep this part of my mind, or this one action I'll just keep to myself. The biblical vision of true worship is total worship. So true worshipers withhold nothing from the lordship of Christ. Secondly, the heart of worship is focused on the offering rather than the reward. So back to Romans 12:1 again. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The author of Romans says this is a reasonable act of service. That's the point. You present yourselves to Christ in sacrifice as an act of service. It's the service, which is the response of love and admiration we have for God, that's the goal. That's the goal. The goal is to honor God. That's our, if we think of rewards, that in itself is enough of a reward. The fact that I'm able to live a life in service to God. So we don't offer ourselves like mercenaries where we want to get something in exchange. We demand that God give us something. God does give good gifts to his children. Don't misunderstand. But we don't live our lives in surrender and worship because we are demanding some kind of quid pro quo from God. We're in a covenant. We're not in a contract. I can't revisit that service, but a covenant is one where we are surrendered, not a contract where we're demanding something. And we don't do it to get the applause or notice of others, right? We don't, we don't surrender our lives to Christ. I don't surrender my lives to Christ, life to Christ so that Bill will applaud me. That's not my goal. I mean, if Bill wants, go ahead, Bill, you can just quietly. No, it's, no, you're good. Uh, the Bible is clear, and I'm going to talk about this more later. If we do these things for the applause of people, we can probably get the applause of people, but that's our reward, and we get the attention. But that's not, we're not looking for that kind of reward as followers of Christ, and the goal is never attention on us. The goal is always attention on Christ in us. So, we offer ourselves as an offering. We don't think about the reward. We're simply trusting that God will take care of us as he sees fit. And the third part of the heart of worship is being content with God's plan. And here I'm thinking of Korah specifically. And I've wrestled with this language a little bit, but let's try this. There's never a reason to covet and resent what God has given to others. So if we surrender ourselves to God fully, then we can appreciate the titles, the positions, the opportunities, the talents, the gifts that God gives other people. We can look at God's gift and what he does for them and where he places them, and we can be excited for them and we can applaud them. And we can do that without resenting that it wasn't given to us. Now, I have had significant godly discontent in my life. But that comes when I recognize I am not living in the design God has intended 
for humanity to live in. I, I've walked outside of his path. I'm now reaping what I sowed. I'm experiencing the consequences of sin, whether it's in my own character, whether it's in my relationships with other people. Okay, then I experience godly discontent. That is not how God intended me to live. That's not what it looks like to have the goodness of God in me and then live it out, right? I think of that as godly discontent. What I'm talking about here with the heart of worship is when we have ungodly discontent. And that's just when I refuse to embrace the fact that the gifts God has given me are enough. I don't need the gifts someone else has. I don't need the talents and skills that someone else has. I don't need to be them, and I don't need to resent them being them. I just need to be me. I need to be who God made me to be. When I think of some of the times of my greatest discontent in life, it's when I have looked at either who I am or the situation I'm in, and I've said, I deserve better. And I look around at other people and I get jealous of their situation or their skill set or their gifts or whatever it is. And rather than recognizing that God in his grace has taken care of me and that God in his grace, if he calls me, he's going to equip me, right? If he calls me, he's going to equip me. So God in his grace has given me what I need to bring glory to him and represent him well in the world. What am I doing looking around and basically saying to God, I don't think you got it right. <laughs> I, I mean, that is the message, right? Like, you missed something. Hello? Right? So the heart of worship is being content with God's plan. Once, once again, there's godly discontent, but we recognize we are out of God's will and out of God's design for our life. But, but, but God equips those he calls, and if you're called, you're equipped. So what it looks like, being content with being who God made you to be in the place God has placed you for the reasons God has planned for you. So that's the heart of worship. Surrender to God's will, focusing on our offering rather than the reward, and be content with God's plan. The second thing is the acts of worship. So on God's terms, it simply means what, when God says present yourselves as a living sacrifice, that'll be on God's terms. Not what I decide is the thing for me to surrender. That decision has been made for me. If I give my life to Christ, that decision has been made for me. I, I, don't, have to, I don't have to wrestle with it. What does God want? everything, right? He gets all of it. And so when I present myself to God on God's terms, who do I want ordering my life as I think about what that looks like? God. I mean, God gets the final say. So uh, I'm not primarily interested in what the government tells me I can and can't do. Now, God commands me to honor them as much as is morally permissible. And thanks to general, general, general revelation, it was harder to get out than I thought. It, it means governments will get things right. But I don't primarily seek what the government wants me to do or not do. I don't primarily seek what my neighbor or my boss or my friends say I can or can't do. Now, the Bible insists that I honor his image bearers. And the Bible is clear that God gives wisdom to others, so it's not as if I don't give weight to what people say, but at the end of the day, I want to know what God says about the issue. Now, I'll learn what God says about the issue in a couple key ways. One is just studying Scripture, just filling myself with Scripture. The second, then, is studying Scripture in community. 
And so uh, that means the commentaries, the theologians, the other pastors. It means meeting with other godly people and wrestling with areas of Scripture. And that's why other people are important because God indwells and inspires other people as well. But I, I'm doing that because I want to know what God says first and foremost. And then... When I know what God says about an issue, then I will align myself with the voices around me that are echoing what God has to say about that issue. And when I do that, well, then that's good because in the sense, I hear the voice of my Father in heaven through those who are speaking his truth. So the first thing on acts of worship is that I will act, I will live on God's terms. Did you understand? I'm not dismissing the, the weight God has given to other things. I'm just saying the primary source that feeds and guides the Christian is the Word of God. Secondly, we do acts of worship for God's glory. Uh, one of the things I pray every Sunday before the service here is that God increases while we decrease. I pray that God increases while I decrease. This morning it was that Braden and Dan decreased while God increases. I'm trying to think of what else it could be that we have to offer. I, I don't want any of you leaving here or watching online and going away and thinking about Anthony or Dan or Braden. I want you to go away thinking about Christ because this is for God's glory. If we do a service here and one of us walks away with a glory that obscures the glory of God, that's a problem. So God's not interested in the publicans who pray to be seen by people. God's not interested in those who give money to be seen by people. God's not interested in fill in the blank, whatever we do to be seen or applauded by people. Uh, Matthew 6 makes clear if we want the applause of people, for other spiritual acts that we do, if that's our goal, we'll probably get it, and that'll be it, and it'll be straw. It's just so petty compared with giving God the glory and hearing the applause around us not be for us but for Christ in us. And so that's what we talk about when we give testimonies, for example. Do our testimonies point toward us or do they point toward Christ in us? If I give you my testimony, will you walk away thinking, Anthony's really amazing? Or you'll think, wow, what an incredible God that can actually pick up the pieces of Anthony's broken life and do something with it. Right? It, we, we point as acts of worship for God's glory. And then finally, we do these acts of worship in fellowship with God's people. All I mean by this is that there's an awareness that we live in a community. So there's the individual relationship that we have with God, but we live in a community of God's people. The language in the Bible over and over makes us... Um, inseparable in some ways. That body language, like we're all parts of a body. And so like if someone leaves, it's like wrenching off a limb. It, like we're all invested in this. And so when we do something, it's not just us and God. We do acts of worship and fellowship with God's people. When I make decisions as Anthony Weber, I make decisions that affect my family. So it affects my wife. It affects my boys. It's inescapable because I don't live in a bubble. And so as I seek to do things that honor God, I'm also weighing, or at least I'm thinking about, uh, what does it look like to, to uh, can let me think about how to phrase this. I'm conscious that my family is watching that the things I do will have a ripple effect on how people think of you, my family. We talked about this a little bit last week. I think the same thing's true with church. But we make decisions as individuals that impacts our church family. And we have to take this into consideration as children of God. Everyone's potential for flourishing grows when true worship happens. So I'm going to throw this out there. 
And uh, if you see the notes online, I have some questions at the end of this, and this might just be something to think about. This just struck me this week as I was preparing this. If I want to find out if the worship that I'm offering to God is true worship, one of the questions I think I need to ask is, does what I'm doing distract or hinder or undermine the faith of other Christians around me? So let me say that again. If I offer something as an act of worship, is it distracting other Christians from Christ? Is it hindering other people's spiritual discipleship? Is it perhaps even undermining someone's faith? Because if so, I'm going to have to question whether that's true worship. On the other hand, is it building people up who are in the body of Christ? Is it encouraging people? It could be that it's challenging people also. Let's put it under the the umbrella of discipleship. What I want to say or do or act or feel or be present in a particular way, and I believe it's my act of worship to God, part of that is that internal wrestling. Am I aligning myself with Scripture? And is my conscience clear? But I think another important thing, because we're part of a body, is to ask the question. Is this act that I think is an act of worship to God, is it, is, is it building disciples in the body of Christ or is it, undermining discipleship in the body of Christ. Because like I said, everyone's potential for flourishing grows when true worship happens. And that's going to take me to my last section, the results of true worship. First of all, God is enthroned. And by that I mean we fix our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith first and foremost all the time. Anything that comes up, the one result of true worship is I see the situation in front of me, I look to God. I hear this thing's going on, I pick up scripture. Like one of the results is that a true worshiper is just gonna be driven back to the word of God and the mind and the heart of God over and over over again. My hashtag on this is no idols. So God gets first dibs on everything. When I think about my money, when I think about my speech, when I think about my freedoms, when I think about my opinions, God gets first dibs. So, I don't need Whitmer or Trump or Pelosi or Fox or CNN to tell me how to deal with societal injustice or respond to the pandemic. Uh, I need Jesus. I, I need scripture first and primarily above all else. When I ask the question, what do I do with what I'm being asked or what I'm hearing or how to have an opinion, I, I don't go to any of those as a Christian primarily or first. I go to scripture because I want to know what God's heart and mind is on this issue. And like I said, going back to something earlier, that does mean conversation with God's people, right? It it doesn't mean wrestling with it alone. It means wrestling with it in community. But I want Jesus to order my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then, once again, it may turn out that some of these voices I'm hearing are right. They're taking a position that aligns with Scripture. Awesome. Awesome. I could support that. I'll support alignment with Scripture wherever I find it. But I need Jesus first to order my heart, my mind, and my strength. And once I do that, then my life is ordered in the way of the kingdom, and I can move through the world like a child of God for the glory of God. All right, Carl's getting nervous. Okay, two more points under true worship. First of all, God's enthroned. Second is God's people flourish. Uh, listen, if we are enthroning God and we're true worshipers, our communities change. That's our church community first, and then it's the city in which we live. This is inevitable because true worshipers are transformed into the image of Jesus. 
which means we're seeing the world with Jesus' eyes. We're hearing the world with the ears of Jesus. We have the heart of Jesus. It's broken for certain things, and it's inspired by certain things. We begin to mirror Jesus, and that's just kingdom gold. I think the church is meant to be this oasis, this, this taste of heaven that brings life in the midst of this barren and howling wilderness in which we live. And I don't just mean getting together on Sunday morning. I mean, as we're interacting online and having coffee together and just hanging out and, and when we're getting here together, but the church as a, as a physical and spiritual place in the world, man, when God's people flourish, that builds its own momentum, not just within the church, but within the community. I think this was Jude's concern about the false teachers. Like, the church is the place of life. The church is the place of life. What did he say? Kindness, peace, uh, and love. That's what the church is established for. And when these false teachers get in, they're going to undermine all these things. They're going to rob you of the life that Jesus offers and that is meant to be experienced together. Uh, man, I love that vision of church. All right, last point, that God's reputation is made great in the world. This is a result of true worship. The Israelites, God chose them and said, my name will be made great in the world through you. How? When you worship me. The, everyone around will see the goodness of God, and it's often embodied in the life-changing experience of God's people. And I think that's the role of the church today. If God is enthroned and God's people flourish, it will bring God glory as our neighbors look on the people of God and recognize the goodness of God. Lord, even as we read Jude's uh, concern and his sobering message for the church, we hear in there a message that is intended to point us toward the truth and the goodness and the life that you offer to your people. And I am grateful that you give us these warnings and that through them we can see uh, where not to go. Where are the things that will rob us of your truth uh, of experience the, the fullness of life abundant that you have promised. And we can see what it's like to, once again, reorder our hearts in worship of you. Reorder our minds, our actions. Lord, I pray that we increasingly become the true worshipers that you desire us to be. Uh, and Lord, I'm just thinking again of how generous this church has been. Uh, I think it's a great example of how your glory is seen as your goodness works in people and it just spreads out and permeates the world. Oh, Lord, give us a heart and a vision for this. Thank you for this, the privilege of this thing we get to do to represent you. Give us the strength. We can't do it on our own. Give us the wisdom. We don't know how to do it on our own. Give us the boldness and the grace and the love. Pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.